All right, this morning we continue in our study of Hebrews. We've reached chapter 3, and what I think for me is in many ways kind of the, the central point of this book, the call to consider Jesus, and that's why I chose that as the, the title of the sermon series. Consider Jesus. Take a close look at who Jesus is, and that's what we will do, God willing, this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Let me read that for us. As always, this is the very word of our living God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May we learn from it as we come before it here this morning. As we do, once again, let me pray for us. Let's pray. O God, the builder of all things, including the house of God itself, we, the members of that household, come before you this morning, thanking you for this time that we have to consider your word and to hear it, asking that as we do, that you would fulfill your very own promise, that when it goes out, it does not return to you empty, that instead it accomplishes everything that you have purposed for it and is successful in everything for which you have sent it. For us, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us learn from your word this morning so that your word would become a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, as always, we pray these things in the wonderful, precious, superior name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. I've said over and over (laughs) that it's my belief that Christians need to hear the gospel more than anybody. Christians need to hear the gospel more than non-Christians. Why do I say that? Well, it's because of the danger that I think all of us have of, of one going in one direction or another. The direction either of of pride in our Christianity, pride in our service to God, pride in something, or despair. And it's usually despair over our sinfulness or despair over the circumstances of life and the things that go with that kind of pride 
and despair. Pride, that danger comes when we forget things that we've read about just in recent weeks, that we have no reason to boast. Paul writes about these things in Romans 3, 27 and Ephesians 2, verse 9. We forget that we have nothing to boast about as Christians. No duties that we fulfilled, no rituals that we obeyed, no commandments that we followed in detail. We have absolutely nothing to boast about because everything has been given to us by God in and through Jesus. When we went through Galatians several years ago, one of the points that I tried to make over and over there is is that I think part of the reason, if not the main reason, that Paul is so passionate in Galatians, so angry, if you will, uh, about the Galatians adopting practices of the Jewish law to be good Christians, is that, in effect, when we do those kinds of things, we're saying to God, what Jesus did isn't enough. What Jesus did isn't good enough. I need to add my own good works to what Jesus did. That's an insult to God. So Paul's angry, and he's right to be angry about that. Pride is a danger when we look to ourselves instead of to Christ. Sometimes we add our good works. Sometimes we like to add our own clever ideas about God's word, about salvation, about theology, whatever it might be. We've already seen here in the first two chapters of this letter that the Ephesians were looking to angels. After all, it was angels who gave the Old Testament law to Moses. And out of that developed ideas of angels ruling the world to come. We can think of the Judaizers who cleverly added the Mosaic law to the requirements for Gentile Christian believers. Pride leads us in a dangerous path. But despair is just as dangerous. And despair sometimes comes when the pride bubble is burst. I really can't do those extra added things. I really can't accomplish those things. So why try? Just give it all up. Forget it. Or despair comes when we forget. And this is so sad, and I've seen it happen. Despair comes when we forget that Christ really did die for every single one of my sins, even the ones I haven't committed yet. And I've known people who get so caught up in in the misery over their own sin that they begin to think, "God, God doesn't like me. God wouldn't save someone as bad as I am. That's that's despair. We get so focused on our sins that we Forget that God is a God of love and mercy for his people, and he saves the most evil of people. We read in our New Testament reading about how those who take the life of God's people will not be spared. And you think, wow, that's, that's harsh. That's pretty definite. But who wrote that? Who wrote that? Paul. And what did he do? He took the life of God's people. God will spare even the vilest sinner. And so there's no room for despair. This is why I think the doctrine of justification is so vitally important. That central truth that reminds us that by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone, our sins completely go to him. And his perfect obedience, his righteousness, 
<coughs> is completely credited to us. So again, Paul's question from Romans 3, where is boasting? Nowhere. It's excluded. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one might boast. Pride and despair are dangers in our spiritual life and walk. There's dangers in our day-to-day life as well. Now, there's room for joy. There's room for sadness. There's room for sorrow. There's room for things in life about which we can rejoice and be happy. We've celebrated birthdays recently. We've celebrated God doing wonderful things in the life of our church family. Good reasons to be happy about different things that we accomplish in life. Good reasons to be concerned and sad about other things as well. Sickness and death and loss of job or broken relationships or those various kinds of things that can afflict us. But that doesn't mean we need to boast and it doesn't mean we need to despair. Those are two, if you can say, uh, if I can say this, they're both distortions of proper joy and proper sadness, proper rejoicing and proper sorrow. But nevertheless, (laughs) we like to boast. We humans are a boastful people. What do you boast about? What are you proud of? Your success? Some people are very proud of their success. Look what I've done. Some people like to boast about their good looks. Some people, it's their athletic achievements. One of the most poignant things about an otherwise terrible TV show, in my opinion, uh, Married with Children, but one of the most poignant truths that was portrayed in that show was the, the father, the husband, Al Bundy, the only thing he could boast about is that one time in high school he scored four touchdowns. How tragic is that? If that's the only thing that you have to boast about is one day of success on the athletic field. We boast about our promotions. We boast about how much money we have, our possessions, the great job, Some people like to boast about their kids and their grandkids. Look at the bumper stickers on the backs of their cars. I'm so good at this. I'm so good at that. I achieved this. I got that reward. We love to boast. And in our boasting, we always think, I'm not like those other people. (laughs) And sometimes that's just the boast itself. I don't think the way they do, so I must be better. I don't act the way they do. I must be better. It's that. Pharisee praying in the temple, thanking God that he's not like that common sinner. Sometimes we're like that as well. I think boasting and pride is far too common in Christianity. I think it's an especially American trait, but it's probably true of the church, wherever it is. Too many of us are too proud of ourselves and we're too happy to talk about it. There's too many in the church who look for reasons to boast. I've described it as wanting to be somebody. We want to be the leading church in our area. We want to be uh, Christian ministries. We want to be the one with the most missionaries. We want to be the biggest. We want to do this. We want everybody to look to us. And I've shared with you before my, my own observation and my own experience 
uh, of seeing that desire when it arises in a church or when it arises in a, a church leader or when it arises in a church organization, as soon as that desire begins to, to permeate and, and, and influence the way they do things, it's the beginning of decline. Every, every single time. I can't think of one exception to it. Well, that's consistent with Scripture. There are three places in Proverbs that warn about pride and the dangers of pride leading to a fall. Chapter 11, verse 2. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Proverbs 29, 23. This is in contrast to the teaching throughout Scripture, and especially what we read this morning from 1 Corinthians. If you're going to boast, there's only one thing to boast about. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. That's the call of the passage before us this morning, to consider Jesus and have proper confidence and something truly worth boasting about. We are his house indeed if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are allowed to boast about one thing, our Lord, who he is and what he's done for us. And that's what I want to look at this morning. How these verses portray Jesus to us, and then what we're to hold fast to, what we're to hold tightly to our confidence, and our boasting, and our hope. So let's first consider Jesus as he's portrayed to us in these passages. Actually, let me back up. I want to look at how the verses portray Jesus, and then there's two applications the author makes. One is to consider Jesus. The other is to hold fast to these, to these two things, confidence and proper boasting. All right. How Jesus is portrayed and then the call to consider him and to hold fast to those two things. The typical description of Hebrews, I've used it myself multiple times. We've talked about it here. The summary of of what Hebrews teaches, Jesus is better. You want to know what Hebrews teaches? Jesus is better. And that's true. That's true and okay. It's it's a main theme of the book, uh, and it works as far as it goes. But there's a reason the author keeps making that point over and over again. Jesus is better than this. Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than this other thing. And I think it's here in verse 1 of chapter 3 that he gives us the reason for saying that over and over and over again, that he wants us to consider Jesus, not just brag about him as being better, but to consider it. More on that application later. But I really think this is the main point or the central call of this whole letter, really focus in on and consider who Jesus is. The author's already told us in two chapters that God has now spoken through his Son, who in past times spoke through the prophets. The Son is a person, namely Jesus, and this Son is superior to angels. And the message he brings is superior to the one they brought to Moses on Sinai. In fact, his name is superior. Yet even so, he came as a man like us and had to come as a man like us so he could identify with us and be a high priest for us who could make propitiation for 
our sins as we talked about last week. So pay much closer attention than you have in the past to this message that we've heard, says the author. And don't neglect such a great salvation. Consider Jesus. But he seems to anticipate objection. And the objection he seems to anticipate is this. Moses was the great prophet of the people of Israel, and he was the great servant of God as well. God may call Jesus the Son, goes the anticipated objection, but Moses alone, of all men, of the whole household of God, was called by God in Numbers 12.7, my faithful servant. And this is how the Hebrews, how the Jews thought of Moses and still think of him to this day. Moses alone among men is called by God, my faithful servant. So the objection goes, how can we abandon what God has given us through Moses? How can we abandon our self-identification, our understanding that we the Jews alone are the household of God? And if you want to be part of that household, you've got to become one of us. How can we abandon the idea of the promised land as our home, our hope, and our place of rest? What is this new message that these Christians are teaching that calls us to abandon Moses and his law that he gave us for this Jesus, this Nazarite? Whose house is it? Moses's or Jesus's house? Reminds me of the sports chant you hear sometimes. Whose house? Our house. Whose house? They're fighting. And the writer anticipates that objection. The Jews were proud of their house, their family, their status as the people of God with a land that God had given just to them. So who are these Christians and their so-called prophet and their so-called Messiah? So what the author of, the, of Hebrews does here is he begins to compare Jesus to Moses. And Moses doesn't fare well in the comparison. Both Moses and Jesus are apostles and high priests, but Jesus is the more faithful builder of God's house, of God's family. That word house is used seven times in these six verses. Six times it's used in the sense of a family, a household, a group of people. One time it actually means an actual house. Um, And Moses and Jesus are compared, first of all, as servants in that household. Again, both apostles, both high priests, but different kinds of faithful servants in that household. And the author argues that Jesus, in fact, is more glorious than Moses. And so those in his house have reason for confidence, and they have reason for boasting. Here's how the argument progresses in these verses. The writer begins by addressing his readers, by addressing us as his holy brothers. We share in a heavenly calling. So he's talking to Christians here in particular, believers, but from the context those who are struggling with Judaism and its competing ideas. This begins with a little subtle reminder that in Jesus we're all holy. We are all saints, as Paul and Peter use the word. 
And in Jesus, we all share the same heavenly calling, a dual call, a call that comes from heaven, calls us to repentance and faith in Christ, but also a call to a heavenly future. Harking back to chapter 2, verse 5, and ahead to verse 6 of our passage, the hope that we have. He then calls Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession, our repentance and our faith. Our confession is in him. And Jesus is an apostle because he's the one sent. He is the messenger sent by God. But he's also a high priest, as we saw last week, who offered himself to make final propitiation, atonement, expiation for the sins of God's people. Jesus isn't an Aaronic high priest. He's not a descendant of Aaron. The author's going to tell us more about that later. But as an apostle and as a high priest, he is described by the author in verse 2 as the faithful servant to the one who appointed him, that is God himself. Well, God also appointed Moses, sent by God as a messenger to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. He acted as a special kind of high priest, making offerings on behalf of the people. Moses was a faithful apostle and high priest in all of God's house, echoing Numbers 12 again. But so was Jesus, says the author. And in fact, in verse 3, he goes on to say that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses himself. It's more glory in the same sense that a builder of a house has more glory than the house that he builds. We've kind of talked about this in the past when we talk about God as creator. God as creator means he gets the glory If you make something, you're greater than what you made. You thought of it, you put it together, you assembled it. It's yours. You own it. You're greater than it. And what the author is saying here is that's Jesus compared to Moses. What's he doing? He's saying Jesus is God. He's saying Jesus is creator. Jesus is, in fact, the builder of the house of God. But then the author gives us a little bit of a reminder in verse 4. Yes, every house is built by somebody, but everything is built by God. Again, he's reminding us that this house isn't Moses' house. It's God's house. And Jesus as the faithful servant in that house and builder of that house now is equated to God himself and gets the same glory that God himself has. Verses 5 and 6 tell us how Moses and Jesus, respectively, were faithful servants. Faithful in God's house. Moses, it says, was faithful in all God's house as a servant. A faithful servant, commended by God himself as a faithful servant. But his job was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, his whole message... Everything given through Moses, everything given to the people of Israel through Moses was just a testimony of something that was to be said later. It was just a pointer to words that would come later. A preparation for that later word, and by implication then a better word, 
the author is tying us back to the opening of his letter. God in the past spoke through prophets, even Moses. But now God has spoken through his son. That word that we've been anticipating, that all of Moses' words anticipated, has now been spoken through this son. And moreover, Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. He's not a servant. He's a son. And what's the difference? A son inherits the house. It's his. A servant just serves and has no inheritance. And so we need to consider Jesus, the Son of God, appointed by God as an apostle and high priest, a more glorious servant even than Moses. And we need to consider the message that he brings of salvation and a world to come. So consider Jesus. This is the context of that admonition in verse 1. And by consider, the author doesn't mean, hey, look, here's Jesus. Take a look at this. Hey, check this out, this Jesus dude, this Jesus guy. I like the way the NIV puts this idea. The NIV reads it this way, uh, or translates it this way. um, Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't just take a quick look. Oh yeah, there's Jesus over there. Look at him. Fix your thoughts on him. Let your thoughts dwell upon Jesus. It echoes the call in chapter 2, verse 1, to pay much closer attention. So this is a call, this is an admonition to very, very close study, to to get to know and continue to get to know, to continue to study who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus has promised to do in the future. The author is calling us to a very studious, a very deliberately studious Christian life. Later on in chapter 6, he's going to call upon us to move beyond elementary doctrine. And he calls that elementary doctrine, among other things, repentance and faith, resurrection from death, eternal judgment. That's elementary doctrine. That's just the beginning of what it means to understand Jesus and who he is, to fix our thoughts Upon him. Just because it's elementary doesn't mean it's unimportant, but it's just a beginning. It's just a start. So the call here is to go deeper, to go beyond, and to graduate past, if I can call it this, spiritual elementary school, to deeper things. We're going to get to chapter 6 and, and beyond in more detail. For now, the admonition is really think. Think about, dwell on, consider, fix your thoughts upon Jesus. Make studying him and who he is and what he's done the central focus of your spiritual life. The second application or admonition in this passage is in verse 6. And that's to hold fast, to hold tightly, to grip, to not let go of our confidence, and our boasting. But it begins with a test, or an implied test. You are God's house. We are his house if we do this. If we hold fast in confidence 
if we hold fast to proper boasting. Those we know with true faith, who truly make their life's goal the pursuit of the consideration of Jesus, are going to show it in how they live and how they act. That's a common New Testament theme. If you love me, keep my commandments. Faith without works is dead faith. We can no longer walk in darkness. We must put off our formal, former life. Put on the new life in Christ. Here the emphasis is on faith that may, that's made evidence by the fact that it holds fast. It won't let go of these two powerful and important things. And so it's a faith that's persistent, a determined kind of faith to hold on and not let go of precious truths that God has given to us. And here he focuses on two things, our confidence and our boasting. What kind of confidence? Well, it's certainly not in ourselves. Confidence in Jesus and in his work for us. Confidence that our faithful high priest really did once and for all permanently make propitiation for our sins. They're atoned for. They're wiped out. God's wrath is satisfied. Now He now looks upon us with loving favor as His children. And confidence that that favor cannot be taken away. Confidence that it cannot be lost. Confident that no one can snatch us out of His hand. Confidence that, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Confidence that Jesus is coming again to usher in that world to come that the writer has been writing about. And that we as members of the house of God have a place in that world to come. A meaningful place, a productive place. A wonderful life to live in the world to come. We're not expecting 70 virgins. We're not expecting endless reincarnation until we finally come to some place of ooey-gooey harmony with the rest of the elements around us. There's a life to come. Life the way it was meant to be lived. Confidence in the hope that God has given to us in Christ Jesus that our inheritance surpasses a small strip of land on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. Confidence that this hope is sure Confidence that this hope is superior to every other hope proposed by every other religion. And that leads to the second precious truth that we're supposed to hang on to with dear life, or for dear life. And that's that we have something to boast about, because we do. Do we boast in ourselves? Well, no, of course not. That's foolish. But we boast about our Savior. We boast about Jesus Christ We boast about his service in God's house. We boast about that he is God himself. We boast about his high priestly work and what it means for us. We boast about his self-sacrifice, his humble service to his people. We boast about the message that he's given. We boast about his holiness. We boast about the glories of his law and his commandments. We boast about our great salvation. We boast about the world to come. We boast about what God has promised us, that future that is far superior to what anyone anywhere else had ever dreamed up. Anything else is just wishful thinking. Our hope is not wishful thinking. 
Our hope is based on a sure promise from God himself. Again, what do you, what do you boast about? What can you boast about? I love the lyrics that we sang earlier this morning. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. What will I boast in? I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Or the other lyrics, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord. All the vain things that charm me most. What did we confess earlier this morning from the first commandment? What are the vain things that charm us most? The little idols that we like to create. Vain things, but they charm us so wonderfully. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. What do you boast about? Typically speaking, boasting has no place in the Christian life. if it's boasting about ourselves. We're called to humble service in imitation of our Lord's faithful, humble service for us. So we don't boast about ourselves, but about the God who has the greater glory, in fact, the greatest glory, because he is the builder of the household of God and the creator of all things. We boast about his glory. We boast about his glorious work. Who do we boast to? Well, each other. (laughs) So that we can teach and admonish and encourage one another. Again, we need the gospel. We need to hear it. We need to be reminded not to boast in ourselves, but to boast in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also boast to our neighbors because they need to hear that same beautiful, wonderful, glorious gospel message about a glorious God and His amazing saving work. And so we call to each other, and we call to the world, consider Jesus. That's something to boast about. So we hear again the call of the writer of this book. Consider Jesus. It's time. It's time to pay much closer attention than we ever have in the past to the message that God has given us through His Son in these last days. Time to fix our thoughts on the messenger, the servant, the apostle, the high priest, the son of such a great and glorious and wonderful salvation, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. Consider Jesus. Lord willing, this is what we'll continue to do as we move through the book of Hebrews. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we are thankful first for Jesus, for who he is and for what he's done. We ask that you would make us ever more and more mindful of that, make us students of him and his great work on our behalf, how it's applied to us by the glorious, wonderful work of your Spirit sent out among us, to be in us, to empower us, to equip us. May we be ambassadors of the good news of the gospel. And if we boast, may our only boast be in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.